Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today, Nicholas Henriksen. And Nicholas is a quite an entrepreneur. He has a, a vast experience. Um, he's uh, worked in Chile and studied in Germany and eventually got his MBA from Stanford. He's worked with Bain, Merrill Lynch, and then has a series of startups. But he started, after his MBA, he started a company called Carl Lipso. And three years after starting, or almost four years, he sold it to Carvana. And at that point, he already had uh, over $30 million in revenue. Actually, that was Carvana's first acquisition. Is that correct, Nicholas? That is correct, yeah. <laughs> well, Nicholas, uh, thank you so much for taking time to join me today. As I mentioned to you, entrepreneurship is one of the three strategic thrusts of the Walton College of Business. So I really appreciate you taking time to uh, to visit with us. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it too. So, you know, I do want to ask you some questions about some of what you're investing in and about your experience with Carlipso. But also, if you wouldn't mind, you know, we're an educational institution and of course, teaching entrepreneurship sure. is important. So here's a question for you. How do you teach entrepreneurship? <laughs> that, that's a good question. Entrepreneurship, a lot of it is courage. Like you really have to just start something and then you find out what you learn. It would be helpful if you're authentic to the space. So if you have if you have a hobby or you're an expert in a certain space, in my, in my case, my co-founder Chris is a huge car enthusiast. And so naturally he wanted to do something in the car space. But step one is to have the courage to do something, have a conviction and try to try to sell something. So in our case, we, we started the business Carlipsa by selling our classmates' cars. And so we had the courage to detail them, take photos, put them on Craigslist at the time, talk to potential buyers. So the courage to do it and then the, the willingness and ability to listen to customers is actually the most important thing of a startup. There's a process you can follow. Though. We took a class taught by Andy Ratcliffe, the founder of Benchmark Capital and Wealthfront. He made a point where he said the most important thing is to find product market fit. Oftentimes what you think people want is not what they want, but they'll tell you what they actually want. You know, I would I would agree. I mean, to really get product market fit, you've got to get your MVP exactly. out there early. And a lot of times uh, entrepreneurs, are sh they don't want to get it out too early. They, yeah. they, they're afraid to. That's true. We, we, we had a class with Steve Blank, and Steve Blank always says, if, if you're not embarrassed about the product you put in front of your customers, you waited way too long. <laughs> that's, I've never heard that, but I like it. Yeah, it's true. We, yeah. Th that's, if you ask me for one of our superpowers, we're never embarrassed. <laughs> like we've, we've put out products that were far from being mature. Um, and the interesting thing is if you put it in front of a mass market, like people will laugh at you and will not consume it. But if you find that early adopter who's really excited about what you're doing, then that person is proud of being the first one to try out what you have because it's a hack and that person is really excited about being the first one. Lesson one is put it out there really quickly. 
and have the courage to do it and don't be embarrassed. Lesson two is you need to identify your audience and you need to know who you're talking to. Well, you know, that process of talking, conversing with potential users, yeah. there is some skill in that because I think there's a couple of things. One, there's a tendency for entrepreneurs to maybe put product out too far developed, but even if they do it early, there's a tendency to not want to get enough eyes on it. You know, it's kind of like after the 10th person, they're like, okay, I've got it. (laughs) Really, if you really keep going and get information, pivot a little bit, test it, pivot, um, that's the only way to really get product market fit, but it's exhausting. I I agree with both of those statements. So the, the process, we call it customer discovery. And that doesn't mean discover where the customers are. It's more discover what they need. If you want something that people, they would be really upset if you took it away from them again. That, those are good signs of product market. But you want people to rave about it, tell everybody about this experience of how they just sold their car. It was incredible. And so you don't get that if you, if you don't continuously ask for feedback. You ask a few questions, you make real offers, and then you wait for the reaction of customers. They'll tell you what they want. They'll tell you very bluntly what they don't like also. So, Nicholas, um, product market fit. I want to, you mentioned it because you said that's really important, and I agree with you. I've heard it said that you know when you have product market fit when you've got customer traction. What do you think about that? That's partly true, but not entirely true. Customer traction you can buy. Like I can't spend on marketing dollars and then some people make it through the funnel and then I can lie myself into believing we have product market fit. I think, first of all, you should distinguish between B2B and B2C. If you're B2C, if you're talking to consumers, product market fit means they're raving about it in front of other people. They're voluntarily writing positive Yelp reviews. They're sending emails. They're making introductions, although you didn't ask for it. Direct to uh, business, B2B, it's slightly different. It's if you want to use numbers, if, if you can, if your sales team can sell a product and it's, you make more revenue than the sales team costs you, that's a good sign of product market fit. The better sign, however, the one to get to easier is if you give the product away for free, like a full week trial phase or freemium phase. And then if you start charging, you take it away and the company really, really, really screams and yells, don't do it. And so those were obviously a little bit simplified, but, but heuristics that worked for me in the past. Yeah, so, so just saying you have customer traction, it's true, but it's not sufficient to, to explain it. And your distinction between B2B and B2C, I hadn't really heard it explained that way before, but I like that. You're right. If uh, customers, consumers really like it, they start commenting on it and reviewing it positively. Yeah. Question. And uh, for companies like your two, your two metrics there, I'd like to drill into that just a little bit. The second one, you let the, the business use it and then you say, okay, it's time to give it back. It's a way of measuring the opportunity cost they have. And because that's always a great way to measure opportunity cost. The, the problem with businesses is like a lot of people sell to them. They have deep pockets. They can write big checks. And so for business, it's really hard to assess from a conversation. Oh, yeah, you're addressing my needs or not. 
Um, and so that's why I really like the model that a lot of SaaS companies use, including Salesforce, including you name it, most of Dropbox. A lot of these SaaS software companies give you a little bit of the product for free and then you start using it. Or it's a trial phase for four weeks and then the timer says, okay, logins, credentials don't work anymore. Um, because it, enterprises really need to start using it and, and see and feel the benefits of your tool versus a different one. I would say, you know, with SaaS companies, that works with consumers as well. And then your your first one for the B2B, you didn't say it like this, but basically it's if you're making a profit on it, at least a gross profit on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The nuance is if you sell to the enterprise, usually these it's very sticky. So once an enterprise is used to a product, switching it is, is usually hard for them. If you think about it this way, you can think about it as a concept of customer lifetime value. So if your salesperson costs you $10,000 a month and you only make $1,000 in profit from the product, that means you spend 10000 to acquire one. But if the product is sticky and stays for more than a year, then you have a lifetime value of that product that exceeds the sales cost. And so there, you, I think it's built nuance, but fundamentally you're right. Is there a gross profit if I assume all the money coming in versus the cost of selling it? So let me ask you this, you know, once you have product market fit, and I agree with you, that is absolutely critical. And during the dot-com boom of the 90s, which I was involved in, that was the problem with venture capital funding. They were funding companies too early, companies that didn't have product market fit. Do you think that has fundamentally changed, thinking about WeWork, for example? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's better than it was. In the it 90s. is better, yeah. But the reason I mention it is uh, just kind of going a step further. Even after you have product market fit, you know, even if it is true that the the company has a high opportunity cost for giving up the the, the solution, um, or they're willing to pay a profit, uh, an amount that is good, um, you know. Before you can start scaling, even at that point, you've still got to get a business model that works. That is true. Whether you're B2B or B2C. Um, and sometimes that can be as tricky as uh, getting product market fit. That is true. Sometimes, and this is, this is crazy, but sometimes you just need to survive long enough as a company to find the revenue stream that makes it a business. Like a, a very good example is Twitch, this, this streaming service that Amazon acquired for $1 billion. It started out as Justin TV, and I happen to know that because Justin was a partner at Y Combinator when we were there. And so Justin would just basically make his live a reality show, was running around with a camera every day and thought that people would watch him, nobody did. And then he made uh, TV channels available online, and that wasn't super, super kosher. <laughs> and then he kind of walked away from it slowly but surely, and his partner took over, Emmett, who then pivoted towards allowing gamers to record themselves online. And so there was no revenue early on, but it scaled incredibly quickly, just like Snapchat as well or Instagram. These businesses didn't have any revenue for a long time. The good news is for these, and that's an exception, like the users became the product. And then somebody else found it valuable to have used Twitch or Instagram or Snapchat as a platform to market to these users. 
Uh, and so these are the exception, these social networks or businesses with networks where users may become the product one day. That's when you can, at least with some level of confidence, say, I don't need revenue for a long time for as long as, as I see that users are coming and staying and engaging. Just having users use your product doesn't mean that you have a business. Yeah, you know, and, and coming up with a business model that really works, that is scalable, because right there's the question of, can you scale the product or service, but can you scale it from a business model perspective? And, and you know, I've noticed some people are just really clever at coming up with business models. I mean, I've, I've known people that just seem to be able to come up with them. Now, I kind of believe that, you know, when it comes to product market fit, you have, you have no choice. You've got to put the product out there, the service, getting lots of feedback with the business model part of it, once you do have uh, product market fit, I think simply being aware of lots of possible business models Agreed. is important. Agreed. It, I would argue it's part of the discovery process, customer discovery. And customer discovery doesn't end when you find product market fit. Because what you know, notice, and we're finding that right now in our process, we're starting a digital platform to refinance auto loans, for example. We thought we'd have to beg credit unions and banks to work with us because the, the product we wanted to give away is money. And so we wanted to act on behalf of these lenders. But in these conversations, we're discovering, oh, no, we're solving their problem, too. And so initially we thought we're making revenue from one side of the market. But now we're realizing by creating a platform where demand and supply meets, we're creating a value for both parties so both parties could pay us. And the only reason we found out is because we're listening to customers and we get a good sense for whose problem are we actually solving. So I want to talk to you a little bit, too, about raising money, because this is a really tricky business here. First of all, I think we might want to talk about, you know, when you should raise money if you're going to. Not everybody needs to raise I agree. Apple. I think it depends on a lot of things, including the business you want to build. So I was just thinking and pausing for a second. Venture capital is, is really, really wonderful if you want to build a really, really big business. Like venture capital is money plus network. And so that's why it's so valuable to raise from venture capital funds that have really strong names. We just closed around. It's not yet, not yet announced, but with a firm, the very big firm from Silicon Valley, like the interest we're getting, the people that they bring on board to be involved and have aligned interests are so incredible. It's almost an unfair advantage. And so, if you if you get cash, you give up a certain portions of your company, but you buy in people who are fully vested in your success. That will help you build a really massive business. And so that's why the model itself, I think, works. The big question is for what type of business is suitable. And I'm, I'm going to give you an extreme examples, but I think it helps me make the point. After selling our business, we had some liquidity. And so I met old friends who do real estate investments. And so I started investing in properties that they were flipping and remodeling. And then that became bigger and bigger. And so I started helping them raise funds for that business. And it's a one by one project by project business. And so there I'm the opposite. I'm really risk-taking when it comes to building my own business, but really risk-averse risk when it comes to deploying capital. 
because when you do real estate, you can put, like, you know what you're getting. You're investing in hard assets. You know what you're buying your land and the property. And so raising money for real estate means you want to have full downside protection and you have zero downside protection when you invest in a venture. So you really need to understand, okay, what are the dynamics? What are the, what are the business models of each of the projects you're investing? And is it a business that lends itself for venture capital versus more one that lends itself for a slightly more fixed income type of capital form? So, you know, you had um, experience as an intern with Bain and company and Merrill Lynch, big companies. Yeah. Then you went to work for a company in Germany. Much smaller, yeah. I studied abroad in Australia, but I grew up in Germany. And then, like all my peers, I looked into banking and consulting. All my peers spoke so highly of these roles. Consulting was super fun. Great lifestyle, really interesting people, fun people. Like, I liked the problems we were looking at. I, I, I didn't like the fact that we couldn't execute. There was advice and no implementation. I'm more the guy who gets gets things done. Banking, I just never understood what, what a lot of people like about it. It, it. I didn't like it a lot. And so instead, I went and joined a renewable energy investment firm that invested in renewable energy projects in China and uh, India. So I spent a lot of time in Asia. That was before I came to the U.S. And then I came to the U.S., got my MBA. And between first and second year of business school, I interned with a, a payment company, with a tech company in the payment space. And so that's really where I, like uh, the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial bug bit me because I felt like this is so interesting and fascinating. And like a startup is a little bit of a research project. You have a conviction that there is some, something that should be different. You get money to explore. And I thought that was really cool. And that's why I then, that's what compelled me to actually do it myself after graduating in 2013. Wow. Well, it's pretty remarkable. You 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 get out of your MBA program and then start a company and less than four years later uh, have a successful exit and better and lucky than smart I think what's <laughs> that things, you you're I w I'm I'm I'd rather be lucky than smart <laughs> so backing up a bit when how do you know when it's the right time to start a company yeah that's a good question a lot of people think I'm like this huge risk taker I wouldn't even say that about myself I'm actually more risk averse than I seem my, my parents, they just taught me early in life how important education is. And education, for me, I see it as my plan B. Like, I will always land softly. I will always find a role in the job in a big company. Thankfully, through the education I received, and Stanford was the same. When we left, our, our last lecture was a professor, an entrepreneur himself, who said, hey, y'all could go to the big companies and make a lot of money. Consider that your plan B, because that's your safety net. Instead, take big risks. Like, there's no better time to take big risks than now, because you know, like, if it doesn't work out, a people will cheer for you because they're impressed by you, ta you taking a risk, and b that job that you wanted to have, you could still have it. And so that's why I think, for as long as you have some sort of plan B, and education is a very, very good plan B, you're actually always in a good place. And then I highly encourage people to take take the leap and, and come up with some courage and try to explore something. So tell me a little bit about Carlipso and why Carvana was interested in it. Yeah, good question. So we started out as a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. That would, that would help you, Matt, sell your car to somebody else. Uh, and we started because all our classmates asked us for advice and help. 
Uh, we raised, I think, $1.2 million based on that model, went through Y Combinator, it's a startup accelerator program, raised another 800000 and then realized that we're actually dealing with two customers who have very, very opposing interests. The seller wants to get the most for the car, and the buyer wants to pay as little as possible. And as a result, we found ourselves squeezed in the middle, and if we made deals happen, both of our customers were unhappy. And so that, that's not a great place to be if you want to build a big company. What we found, there's a lot of institutions out there, like leasing companies, rental companies, fleets that are sitting on thousands and thousands of cars of inventory, can sell directly to consumers, and instead sell to dealerships through a marketplace called the wholesale auction. And that marketplace has a much, much lower price level per vehicle, but consumers don't have access to it. Because it really requires, and this is by law, requires dealers to buy these cars from wholesale and then dealers to sell it to consumers. And so our whole idea was making these cars at a lower price level available directly to consumers. And in order to do so, we, we basically tapped into a supply of 200,000 cars at any given time, advertised them to consumers. And if and when a consumer told us, this is the exact car I want, then we'd go ahead, buy it, recondition it and deliver it. To power that, to enable that, we, we wrote a lot of software because you needed to describe the vehicles very well. These vehicles at wholesale change and rotate all the time, so it needs to be really quick. And then we realized, hmm, we thought we'd be building an operating business, but in reality, what's most valuable is the software we build. And then when we compared notes with Carvana, which I always recommend if you're in, like people always are very secretive around their startups ideas. I actually would do the opposite, share them with everyone. Like there is no such thing as a secret sauce. You really need to build a business. And that's how we felt. So we compared notes with Carvana, became friends and realized that we had built software they were trying to build and hadn't started yet. And so it was really a, a mutual fit in terms of software and products we had built, but particularly because the people were great. We got along very well with the founders and the executives. We, we saw an opportunity to like skyrocket everything we had built. And so this, once they said they'd invite us to come over, we felt flattered and sold the company and brought the whole team over. Nicholas, I see that you've invested in quite a few companies. How do you personally decide which companies to invest in? They actually choose two different approaches. Number one, and this is the majority of these companies, these are really good friends of mine. Uh, either friends who supported me in the past or friends I just think really, really highly of. And I don't even care what they're doing. I just want to be part of their entrepreneurial journey. And so I write a check. A lot of them, surprisingly, in uh, South America, I'm, I really love South America. My parents are originally from Argentina. And uh, South America is a little behind when it comes to the startup ecosystem, venture capital. And so you can, you can in South America, you can basically build companies that work really well in the US. And if you're the, the only one who has access to capital, you will win. So friends who I love and respect and who I would invest in no matter what they did, all of a sudden start doing businesses where they have some sort of monopoly because they have access to capital. So that's why I'm doing it and, 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 and I'm very encouraged. And then the other, other direction I take, a good friend of mine, he, he runs an angel fund, a seed investment fund, and sees a lot of uh, software as a service deals and companies that I don't even understand, and I'm just blindly following him. <laughs> Well, that's great. You know, Nicholas, would you be open if, if say, some of our students would like some advice from you and they reached out to you, would you be willing to give some advice about entrepreneurship? 
Of course. Yeah, no, I'd love that. The best way to find me is to connect with me over LinkedIn, I guess. Maybe you can put my LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Sure. Um, yeah, and I'd love to hear from students what they're up to, if it can help or give advice or maybe angel invest, like whatever it may be. A lot of people helped me. A lot of alumni helped me get started. And so if, if I can give back in some shape or form, like I would feel really flattered and would love to be part of those journeys. Well, Nicholas, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking time and congratulations on your success as an entrepreneur. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.